The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. As we turn our attention to God's Word this morning, would you turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. And as you do that, uh, let me tell you about my grandfather, about Papaw Jim. Papaw Jim loves to move. I'm not talking about exercise. I'm not talking about like getting up and going for a walk. I'm talking about him living in a house, being comfortable, ha- you know, having everything settled, place for everything and everything in its place, finding a different house or building a different house, packing up all his stuff, putting it on a truck and moving. In, in, in the time that I can remember, he can, he's lived in nine different houses in the same city. <clears throat> this is not a man who like finally has all his kids graduated and so he's going to downsize or build his dream house or needs to move for any kind of job transition. No, nine houses in the same city, three of which are on the same street. Not like in the same neighborhood, not like he lived in three different houses in Hilton Head Plantation. The same street, just a different number on the front door. My grandfather loves to move, and he's the exception that proves the rule. We don't like change, especially when it's forced upon us. We don't like change. My grandmother hates to move. Change is forced upon her, and she resists it. But any of us, whether it's starting a new job, moving, sending kids to college, changing schools, changing brands of toothpaste, it doesn't have to be a big thing. We hate change. And yet God comes to us and says we are desperately in need of change. He comes to us before we're redeemed, before we're converted, and says, you have a guilt problem. You have a sin problem that has resulted in guilt and wrath against you, and Christ deals with that on the cross. But he is so good that he doesn't stop there. He says, you still need to change. I still need to make you holy. I've declared you holy in justification, and now I'm going to make you holy. He sends his spirit to sanctify us. But again... We don't like it. We don't naturally seek change. And we're going to look at a man this morning who didn't want to change, but who desperately needed to change. And we're going to see how God, by his grace, interrupts this man's life to affect the change that he so desperately needs. And, and the message is the same for us. Because we don't naturally seek change, because we don't naturally seek the way of holiness, we should welcome the Lord's interrupting grace in our lives. Follow along with me as I read Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house. And prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belteshazzar after the name of my God. And in whom is the spirit of the holy gods? And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. 
I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And sets, it, sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation. Because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may this dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven, saying, Chop down the tree, destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, until seven periods of time shall pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules." Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be, perhaps, a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence, And for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. 
And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say to him, none can stay him, stay his hand, or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now... I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we desperately need to hear from you this morning. We desperately desperately need change. We need to be sanctified, we need to be made holy, and we, we so desperately don't want to change. Father, I pray that this morning you would open our eyes and unstop our ears, that we might be able to hear your voice and see your work in our lives, that we might be made more and more into the image of Christ, that you might give us the humility to change. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Pull out a clock for us. All right. <laughs> Again, because we don't naturally seek change, because we don't naturally seek holiness, we should welcome the Lord's interrupting grace in our lives. And we'll see that this interruption has with it, with it three gifts. First, the gift of restlessness. Second, the gift of perspective. And finally, the gift of worship. Restlessness, perspective, and worship. First, the gift of restlessness. One of the reasons that we don't seek change naturally is because we like things the way they are. We're generally pretty comfortable. Uh, One of the pastor influences that I read says most people, most of the time, are not in trouble, are not in despair. Life, Life is comfortable and life is relatively easy and so we don't think we need to change. And Nebuchadnezzar says as much in verse four. He gives us the starting point of this change. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. In other words... I was fat and happy. I wasn't looking to make a change. Everything was good. But as we said earlier, we desperately need change. How how many of us can say like Nebuchadnezzar, I am at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. We might not call our house a palace, but every man kind of thinks of his house as his castle, right? And I'm king of my castle. Nebuchadnezzar's description is very true of us, but it's not long before his fat and happy turns into, I can't fall asleep. Look at verse 5. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in my bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. God gives Nebuchadnezzar the blessing of discomfort to wake him up from the distraction of his ease and prosperity. 
Nebuchadnezzar is sleepless, and we all know what this is like, don't we? Whether we can't fall asleep because we've got a big test tomorrow, got a big interview or presentation coming up, we've got to see my in-laws tomorrow, whatever it is, sometimes we just have trouble falling asleep. Or some of us wake up in the middle of the night and, and our minds start concocting these crazy scenarios of what if this and what if that and we're not going to be able to to live here and we're going to have to live in a cave in the mountain and we won't be able to put food on the table. And you you wake up in the morning and say, how on earth did I get there? It seems reasonable in the dark of night. But whatever the case, we so desperately want to sleep but our minds keep going. Nebuchadnezzar is troubled and can't sleep. And, And this is ironic because if there's one person in the entire world who should be able to get a good night's sleep, it's Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he's the king of Babylon, and at this point in the world's history, Babylon is the only player on the stage. Like, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have to worry about foreign armies invading, because there are no other foreign armies that can invade. He doesn't have to worry about getting fired in the morning, because he's the king, and you can't fire the king. He doesn't have to worry about what he's going to eat, because he has people cook for him. Like, he has zero worries, except for this dream. God gives him the blessing of discomfort in this dream to wake him up. And Nebuchadnezzar, he kind of knows what this dream is about, right? We read it the first time, and it's not hard to interpret it. Especially in Nebuchadnezzar's day, the tree was a common symbol of a ruler. And as the tree, as the ruler flourished, so the kingdom flourished. And so with that in his mind, there's no one else that this dream can describe. It reaches to heaven, it spreads over the whole earth, and Babylon was ruler over the known world. There was nowhere on earth that this kingdom didn't spread to. There was no one that wasn't nourished by Babylon. It was thriving. It it was alive. It was a a place of technological advancement, uh, of research. It was a progressive city. But this tree is cut down. No wonder Nebuchadnezzar can't sleep. There's no one in the world that this dream could be about other than him, and it's a bad dream. The tree is cut down. Nebuchadnezzar is discomforted. Again, God gives us the blessing of discomfort to awaken us from the distraction of ease that we might learn something about ourselves, and more importantly, about our God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, to keep me from becoming conceited, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Paul says, I have this perpetual temptation to get a big head about the fact that God speaks to his church through me. So to counter that, God gave me the gift of a thorn in my flesh, a perpetual discomfort to remind me that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. How do we respond to discomfort? We don't like it, do we? Some of us avoid it. Some of us deny it. Some of us ignore it. Some of us try to sedate it. But I want to encourage you this morning to rejoice in discomfort. Listen to the words of James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, when you meet discomfort of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, count it joy when you face discomfort, because God, through your discomfort, is making you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
where do we see discomfort in our lives? It, it takes many forms. It comes up in many ways. It can be as simple as physical pain that won't go away. It could be as complex as worry and anxiety over a child that has just gone to college or how you're going to pay the college that the child has just gone to. It can be a broken down car or a leaky water heater or a thorn in your flesh or sleepless nights. Discomfort can look like many different things, but God gives us this blessing to wake us up. He gives us the blessing of of restlessness, the gift of restlessness, so that we might receive the gift of perspective. And this is our second point this morning, the gift of perspective. One of the things that discomfort does is forces us to seek help. It It drives us to seek wisdom. A broken air conditioner in the low country in the summer will drive you to seek the wisdom of a repairman. A sleepless night over and over like Nebuchadnezzar has will drive him to seek the wisdom of Daniel. He calls for help and he goes ultimately to the one who has proven to be a source of wisdom in the past, Daniel. He flatters him first in verse 18. He says, Daniel, I talked to all these other guys and and they're not as smart as you. They're not as insightful of you. They don't have the spirit of the holy gods in them like like you do. So come on, Daniel, help me out. Tell me the dream. And and he even tells him, he he says, Daniel, I can tell that you're a little worried about this. I know it's not a good dream, so just give it to me straight. Don't let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Just give it to me straight, Doc. And Daniel does. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the tree, and you are going to be cut down. And he reminds him again of the interpretation in verse 25. Here's why. So that you may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Three times in this chapter, that phrase is repeated, that verse is repeated. That Nebuchadnezzar may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. Nebuchadnezzar is literally the king of the earth. And he needs to learn, he needs to change, he needs to know that the Most High rules. In other words, Daniel says, your position is a gift, and it can be taken away. And Daniel goes a step further in verse 27. He's explained the dream, he's reminded him of, of what the dream means, and now he gives advice. And look at the boldness and courage of Daniel here. Because Nebuchadnezzar is the king of the world, and Daniel is a member of a disgraced, exiled people, a youth still in the king's palace. And he has the audacity to recommend a course of action to the king. He says in verse 27, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. And he goes so far as to say that that if you repent, it may be that God doesn't bring the discipline that he's promised. We see this other places in Scripture that the warnings that God gives are are to wake us up, to call us to repentance, and that if we do repent, that God will delay, that God will remove his promised discipline from us. Basically, Daniel gives him the gospel. He says, my God forgives sin. If you will repent, if you will turn from your ways and submit to him, it doesn't have to happen this way. This discipline doesn't have to come. Nebuchadnezzar receives the blessing of wisdom through Daniel. Proverbs tells us that faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. The psalmist says, let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. 
Daniel has the courage to look at Nebuchadnezzar and say, repent, believe in the gospel. The wounds of a friend are a gift. Do you have a friend like that? Are you a friend like that? We desperately need friends like this. We desperately need one another in the Christian life to remind us of the gospel, to remind us that God forgives sins and to call us to repent of those sins. So who have you invited into your life and given permission to speak honestly, to give it to me straight, Doc? Yes, to do it lovingly and gently and restoringly, but honestly. And who do you Who have you been invited to do that for and where do you need the courage to speak into someone else's life with that kind of honesty and gentleness and restoring spirit? We desperately need to be reminded of and to remind one another of the gospel. Nebuchadnezzar is given this gift. He's he's proclaimed, the gospel is proclaimed to him by Daniel, but he can't hear it because Nebuchadnezzar is distracted by his pride. Do you catch what we're told after Daniel gives his advice? In verse 29, we have this little almost throwaway phrase, at the end of 12 months, one year later, no change has happened. Nebuchadnezzar and his pride can't take the advice that Daniel gives, and he goes even further. And in verse 30, he's walking on the roof of his palace, surveying his city, looking out, looking down, and he says, this place is awesome. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my hands? By my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? It's not idle boasting. Nebuchadnezzar was a brilliant leader, a brilliant military strategist, a brilliant administrator, and Babylon thrived under his leadership. The city truly was great. The walls around the city were so wide, so thick, that you could drive two chariots side by side in parts of the wall. One of the wonders of the ancient world, the hanging gardens of Babylon, were built in Babylon during this time as a gift for his wife. This is not idle boasting, and the problem is not that Babylon's a great city. The problem is Nebuchadnezzar's evaluation of it. He says, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Pride distracted Nebuchadnezzar from listening to Daniel in the first place, and now it distracts him from remembering the dream that caused his trouble a year ago. We're really good at recognizing pride in other people, aren't we? We, we kind of have a natural radar from it, and we, we resist it, and it, it kind of it puts a wall between people, and, and we just don't like it. It rubs us the wrong way. But that radar has a huge blind spot on it, and it's me. I can see your pride so clearly and articulate all the reasons for it and why, why it's so ugly, but I can't see my own. Again, we need one another to call this out in us, but as we talk for the next few minutes about some different kinds of pride, I want to encourage you to be honest with yourself. Take an honest assessment of your own heart, of your own life, and ask, am I prideful in any of these ways? And how is that pride keeping me from hearing the wisdom that God has given me through his word, through other believers, wherever it comes from. You see, there's more than one kind of pride, or there's more than one manifestation of pride. Nebuchadnezzar's version is pride of achievement. It says, look at what I've done, look what I've accomplished, look what I've built. Aren't I somebody? Aren't I great? 
Don't I deserve some praise and some worship for that? And we do this too. You know, Nebuchadnezzar says, didn't I do a good job with Babylon? We say, look at this company that I've built and that I've been so successful in. Is this not great shank enterprises, which I have built by my mighty power? Or or we say it about our families. We say, you know, look at how well behaved my kids are or how well they're doing in school or how well they're doing in their careers. And we say, are these not the great shanks which I have built by my mighty power? Whatever it is, we say, look at this that I've done. Look at this that I've done. Look at this that I've achieved. And therefore, aren't I great? The Bible has little patience for this kind of pride. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says to the church, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why are you acting like you did not receive it? Paul says, in other words, everything you have is a gift. So yes, maybe you have accomplished a lot by your hard work. But why do you have that work ethic? It's a gift. Yes, maybe you've been blessed with intellect. But why do you have that? It's a gift. Yes, maybe you grew up in a good home that encouraged your mind, that encouraged your work ethic... You didn't pick the home that you grew up in. You didn't pick the century that you were born into. You didn't pick. You didn't pick. So why do you act like you did? Paul says this pride that you have in your accomplishments is antithetical to the gospel. But that's not the only kind of pride we can have. There's this pride of accomplishment. There's also a moral pride where we pick some kind of moral standard and look at our alignment with that and say, therefore, I'm a good person. You know, we do this in the church. We say, here's biblical Christianity. I have my quiet times. I tithe. I don't watch those kinds of movies, so I'm a good person. But this happens just as frequently outside of the church or or with our our hobbies or other pursuits. You know, if the moral high ground is environmentalism, then we're going to be proud of the fact that we drive a Prius. Whatever your moral standard is, if you say, I meet up with that, then you say, "I'm, I'm somebody. I'm good. I'm a good person. The Bible has little patience for that kind of pride as well. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable about two men who went to worship, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And when he's describing what the tax collector says when he goes into worship, the message is clear. The tax collector goes in and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like these crooks and swindlers and manipulators and that tax collector. Thank you, God, that you didn't make me like those people. And we rightly look at that and want to take a step back and say, that is, mm, Lord, God, thank you that I don't compare myself to other people like that Pharisee does. Right? We're we're Pharisaical when it comes to our evaluation of Pharisees. God says this kind of pride is against the gospel. There are all other kinds of pride as well. Pride of, of pedigree, of the family that we're from or the school that we've gone to. Pride of doctrine that we we know the truth and the right truth and we can point out where everybody else is wrong because it's important that I be right and you be wrong. We can get a pride about the fact that we don't care about doctrine. You know, I I don't want to worry myself about all those divisive things and so I'm just going to pridefully stay back from this debate. We have pride of independence. I don't need you. I don't need the church. I'm good on my own. All these different kinds of pride have something in common. They all drive us to a point where we say, I deserve it. Whether we're citing our achievements, our moral accomplishments, our pedigree, our right doctrine, our effort, whatever it is, pride leads us to say, I've earned it. I've worked hard, therefore you owe me. I've deserved it and you're wrong to keep it from me. 
the it that we've deserved might be different for different people. It might be comfort. It might be material prosperity. It might be the praise of others. It might be any, of no, any number of things. But pride turns everything that we have into our due, into our wages, into our accomplishments. And this is where humility and pride are, are so contrasted and why humility is so beautiful. Because pride says, I've done X, therefore I deserve Y. Or false humility, that's really just a different version of pride, says, I haven't done X, therefore I won't accept Y, because I have to earn it. Humility gets rid of that whole merit equation altogether. It says, that system doesn't work. Whether or not I've done X, it doesn't mean that I deserve or don't deserve Y. Like, of course I don't deserve it. God has no reason in me to bless me, but look at all these blessings coming my way anyway. God has no reason to give me a gift, and yet he just keeps on giving. Because pride is not clinging to our own works, because it's not holding on to what I've done, it walks through life with open hands, offering nothing, because it knows it has nothing to offer, and receiving all things as a gift. This is what makes humility beautiful, that it receives as a gift. And this is why joy and humility go hand in hand. Because if you're receiving things as a gift, you can actually enjoy them. If they're your wages, you're allowed to say, it's not good enough, or I need some more. But if it's a gift, you can actually enjoy it. Nebuchadnezzar is given this blessing of wisdom, but he can't see it because he's distracted by his pride. And, And that leads to this last aspect of the gift of perspective, the blessing of discipline. As my grandmother would say, you didn't listen, so now you have to feel. God gives Nebuchadnezzar the blessing of discipline. Verse 31 says, while the words were still in the king's mouth. Nebuchadnezzar hasn't even finished his sentence and God says, that's it. Here's the promised discipline. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom And greatness and sanity are removed from him. And he is removed from men. And he's out in the field eating grass like an ox. The tree is cut down. And for seven times, that probably means months or seasons. So six months, a year and a half, something like that. Nebuchadnezzar's out in the wild, out of his mind, disciplined for his sin. And it's a blessing. It's a blessing because this discipline comes from a loving God. We don't like discipline, do we? I mean, we don't, we don't naturally seek change. We don't like discomfort. We certainly don't like to be disciplined. But the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12 that, that in the midst of di- discipline, you can know for sure that at least one thing is true, that God loves you. Because God disciplines the one He loves. If God didn't love you, he would let you go your merry way and destroy yourself in your sin. But because God loves you, he's so gracious to to give us the wake-up calls of discomfort that we might be drawn back. But if we won't listen to that, he'll give us the rod of discipline and drag us back to himself because God loves you. So are you experiencing the weight of discipline in your life right now? Rejoice in the midst of it because it's proof that God loves you, that his spirit is at work in you.
Even in the midst of this discipline, God is merciful. This discipline doesn't last forever. We see that Nebuchadnezzar is restored. This discipline is not punitive. It's not punishment or judgment for sin That's, that fell on Christ. It's to bring us home. The tree is cut down, but it's not uprooted. And even more, in the midst of discipline, God wraps these bands of iron and bronze around Nebuchadnezzar to protect the stump, to hold it together, to keep it whole and healthy for such a time as it will be reborn, as it will grow again. Nebuchadnezzar receives the gift of new perspective. He won't listen to the wisdom of Daniel because he's distracted by his pride, and so God gives him the blessing of discipline. And that leads us to our third and final aspect of this gift this morning, this gift of God's interrupting grace, and that's the gift of worship. You see, we worship a God who restores. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and his sanity are returned to him. He's brought back, and his kingdom is made even greater than it was before. We worship a God who restores, and we worship a God who reigns. Look again at Nebuchadnezzar's song in verses 34 and 35. He says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Down in 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. We worship a God who restores, and we worship a God who reigns. Nebuchadnezzar has finally learned the lesson. The Most High rules, and he gives and takes away. He gives the gift of worship. And worship changes us. Worship interrupts our lives because it calls us out of ourselves. It it calls us to take our eyes off of my life and my kingdom and my worries and my problems and puts them on Christ. Because this is is ultimately is how we're, we're changed. We're not changed by our own effort. We're not changed. You don't become humble by, by really bearing down and saying, all right, I'm going to be humble and I'm going to work really hard about being humble because all that happens is you, you actually make some progress and then you get prideful about the fact that you're humble and you're back to square one. We don't, we don't change in a lasting way by that kind of moral effort. We change by seeing Christ. You see, there is a king who can say, Look at Babylon. Is this not great Babylon? Is this not great existence, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Jesus Christ can look out over all creation and say, I did that, and I did that, and I made that, and I made that. Aren't I great? And there's not a drop of pride in it. Yet listen to what Paul says about him in Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty, might become rich. So would you be humble? Would you be changed? Look to Christ. Join with us as we worship a God who restores and a God who reigns. Don't forget that you worship a God who restores and a God who reigns. It's a joy to submit to him as Nebuchadnezzar does.
This is the last word that we get about Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Next week we'll see Belshazzar. Daniel is Belteshazzar and he's going to be at Belshazzar's feast. They're two different people and yes, it's confusing. Daniel chapter 6, we get into Darius and the lion's den. But we don't see Nebuchadnezzar anymore. But, but look at the progression that Nebuchadnezzar has made throughout the book. He's introduced in chapter 1 as the destroyer of Jerusalem, the, the enemy of God's people. He brings young men into exile. We saw in, just last week that he literally throws people into a furnace that don't do what he says. But here, he's changed. He's a worshiper of God. What about you? Where do you need to change this morning? Where is God trying to wake you up by discomfort? Where is God currently, or, or, or where are you dreading the discipline of the Lord because of that sin that you just won't let go and you know it's a matter of time before Dad finds out and disciplines you? Won't you, like Nebuchadnezzar, humble yourself before this great restoring and reigning God? Won't you come to the risen Christ this morning? Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time. Won't you submit to this king? For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray.